The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Turning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Let's pray. Gracious God, you call us to return to you and to rest in you and to be quiet before you and to trust you. And you promise marvelous things to us. We will come to you like that. You promise us salvation in the eternal sense and in a temporal sense here in this world. You promise us rest of soul. You promise us strength. Thank you for that. I pray, Lord, this morning work in our midst with what's already gone on and with what we are about to do. Listen to your word. Would you work in these things to draw us to you, those of us who know you and those of us who don't, to draw all of us to you and cause us to trust you and to rest in you. Do that, Father, I pray. Son, lift up your name in our midst. Cause us to love you. Spirit, quicken us. Give us ears to hear and understand and a heart and a mind to obey. Thank you, God, for your great goodness to us. Magnify your name, we pray. Amen. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Those four words written on the wall by the fingers of a human hand that appeared and written on the wall in the midst of a great party thrown by the king of Babylon with a thousand guests. They were all shocked sober when they saw the hand, no doubt, and they were shocked sober by the meaning of those four words. The righteous Jew Daniel was brought forth and he gave the interpretation. He explained those four words. The end of Babylon's reign had come. God had judged them, weighed them in the scales, and found them wanting. And their kingdom had been divided and given to their enemies. The Lord of all the earth had come to deal with wicked Babylon, pouring out his wrath upon them. Many nations... And many people had longed to see that day. They'd waited for it. They'd cried out for it. The prophet Habakkuk himself had asked about it. He prayed about it. He'd looked for it. And though he didn't live to see this final declaration of judgment, 60, maybe 70 years before that writing on the wall, he had received, figuratively speaking, his own version of the writing on the wall. When the Lord had given him a vision talking about the future. He'd given him a vision, told him to write it down, to preserve it, and to pass it on to future generations so that it could be read, seen, understood, and that it would cause hope, and it would serve as a warning also. He'd received that. Speaking of the future, a vision. Now, it didn't contain all the details 
all the, the answers to the when and the where questions. You know, we often misunderstand when we seek all the details of the when and the where. God is far less interested in those questions than he is in the what and the who questions. God wants to show us what he's going to do and he wants to show us himself, the one who is going to do it. And he said in that vision that we saw it begin to, begin to be unfolded in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, we saw there that he says, this is what I'm going to do and this is me, the one who is going to do it. I will come. I am for sure coming and I will not delay. I will come and deal with the proud everywhere, with proud Babylon and proud Babylonians, those who are like Babylon in nature with, an, with a puffed up spirit, a heart that is not upright within them. I'm going to come and I will deal with them and I will vindicate my righteous ones. It will happen for sure. That's the thumbnail. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Remember the, the computer image of a thumbnail. You click on it then and it expands out. Well, in verse 6 and following, that's what happens. Some more of the details begin to be fleshed out. Last week, we looked at verses 6 to 14. We saw that there are five statements introduced by the word woe in these verses. Woe, it's, it's not the harshest version of woe, a judgment. It's, it's got, it has some wooing in it, some pleading, some sorrow, a touch of lament. And there are five statements like that. We looked at the first three last week. Now we look at the, the last two. They were interconnected. So these two are going to come together to form a message similar to last week's. Let me sum up the main point of these last two woes and of this morning's sermon. Here it is. Mourn and take heart. Same reactions as last week. Mourn and take heart. The Lord reigns in perfect justice. Two reactions, mourn or take heart. And which one most applies to you depends on which side of God's judgment you fall. Mourn and take heart. God reigns in perfect justice. We see that developed in the last two statements of woe. But first let me read the passage. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I'll be reading Habakkuk 2, verses 15 to 20. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in it. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before him. We begin with the fourth woe, verses 15 to 17. Let me summarize it like this. The Lord will deal with those who degrade and humiliate his creation. The Lord will deal with, he will justly judge and perfectly punish. He will deal with those who degrade and humiliate his creation. This is not about embarrassing one another. This degrading and humiliating is a much greater thing than that. Proud conquerors of all sorts, nations who conquer with military power, corporations who conquer with economic power, even individuals who conquer with intellectual or monetary power, or some just simply with a gun or a knife or muscle. The world is full of those who degrade and humiliate the creation by force. What the Lord is saying here is that I see that, I know it, and I will deal with it perfectly. He gives warning, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. First part of this verse is obviously picturing drunkenness and drinking in excess. The proud person is described here as one who makes those around him intoxicated, drunk. But in your mind, don't just picture a couple of friends at a bar and you know, one person who can hold his liquor a little more and he keeps buying liquor for everybody else, though they should have quit by now. That's not the image. That's far too friendly and far too kind. Don't, don't picture that in your mind. He's doing all of this in wrath, with malice. If you have the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Translation, you see they capture this by using the words with wrath or with venom. Rather than a couple of friends at a bar, you should picture a strong man who gets up, walks next door to his neighbor's house, grabs that person by the hair, throws his throat back, pours in alcohol, making him drunk. This is ugly. But it gets worse. There's a purpose behind this violence. The end of the verse. Just making him drunk is not the goal. It is in order to gaze at their nakedness. The humiliation being caused here is sexual in nature. Other usages of other uses, other times this phrase is used indicate that what God is trying to, to communicate to us is at least the humiliation of having one's body exposed for public viewing. But in this context of violent drunkenness, we are probably meant to think of more than that, something along the lines of forced sexual behavior or abuse perhaps even rape. That's the image presented here in this verse. And God is using it here because it's the most extreme picture of, an example of, a larger issue that he's attacking. If we focus only in on sexual abuse in its, in its most smallest expression, in smallest expression, we miss something. He's trying to show us something a little larger. There are a few clues in the text. First of all, notice that this violent aggressor here is not motivated by sexual pleasure. He's motivated by wrath, by anger. He's not, he's not seeking to please himself. He's seeking to conquer and destroy. This matches with some things, some 
modern research that I've been exposed to that says that what's behind rape very often is not sex, it's power and conquer and control and humiliation and, and degrading another person. That's what's going on here in this, in this case. Secondly, you can look at, at the next verse, we'll go there in more detail in a minute, but if you look at the next verse, you see that twice God contrasts glory with shame. He says to this aggressor, you sought glory. You didn't seek sexual pleasure. You sought glory, and I'm going to cover you with shame. There's something else going on there beyond just sex. And lastly, in verse 17, you've got a reference to the creation and violence and blood. Nothing sexual there. So what's going on in verse 15 is that he's using the most graphic example of a person's ability to degrade and humiliate and tear down the creation. Sexual assault in some way. But the real issue that he's getting at is this desire in us to tear down so as to build ourselves up. That's what's going on there. It's the focus of the woe then is God is pronouncing judgment on and he's promising to deal with those who humiliate and degrade that which he has made. I might put it like this. Woe to those who strip the creation naked so as to utterly dominate it and humiliate it and to show themselves as its master. I will deal with that. That's what proud, wicked people are doing when they rape the land and when they rape other people. Showing themselves as conquerors. Trying to subjugate in a very personal and tragic way. That's the focus of the woe. And he's going to deal with that. Verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The proud person sought to show off his power. He's seeking to elevate himself. To show those around him and himself that he is mighty that he has triumphed over them. He looks figuratively, looks at his victim there, drunken, conquered, lying on the ground. He steps back and he, and he revels in his glory. Babylon did that all the time. They elevated themselves. They filled themselves full. The Lord says to him, you will be full, all right, but not full of glory. You'll be full of shame. Shame, it's humiliation. He's turning the tables. You want to humiliate, you will be humiliated. Drink, a command. You yourself now drink, the command from the Lord. You forced others to drink, now you are forced to drink and show your own uncircumcision. This is brutal stuff here. I'm trying to communicate that in my tone a little bit. This is not the Lord saying in a very nice and polite manner, tsk, tsk, shouldn't do that. This is the Lord angry at those who have violated his creation. It's a good thing that he's this angry because it is an evil thing that has been done. He's responding to them with retribution. He's turning the tables on them. Everything now comes back full circle. No sooner has the proud person set down that now empty cup that he force-fed to his neighbor before he abused him. No sooner has he stepped back from his violent abuse, rejoicing in his conquest. No sooner has he done all that than the hand of the Lord holds out to him a cup. And he says, okay, now, your turn. You drink. 
The proud will be rendered drunk, stripped of their dignity, themselves humiliated as others gaze now at their nakedness. Last phrase of the verse, utter shame will come upon your glory. Utter shame, it's a compound word there related to vomit. The picture couldn't be any more alarming. The proud conqueror glories in his ability to utterly humiliate and destroy the personhood of his victims. And then in the very next moment, he himself is sprawled out naked, his glory covered in his own vomit. This is not pretty. And how did it all come to pass? The cup in the Lord's right hand came around to him. It's not random. It comes directly from God. You use a cup to pour out your venomous wrath, to humiliate and degrade and exploit my creation. You use a cup. I too have a cup. You feel this? Jeremiah adds some detail to what we've seen in Habakkuk already. We've seen in Habakkuk how God uses Babylon to judge the nations and then turns to judge Babylon. Jeremiah says the same thing and elaborates on it. He says that Babylon was known as a golden cup in the hand of the Lord. The Lord was using their wickedness to judge all the other nations' wickedness. It's as if he passed this cup of Babylon around the table of the nations and said, Assyria, drink and be filled with my judging wrath come at the hands of the Babylonians. Egypt, drink and be judged. You Philistines, you Arabs, drink. Judah, drink. And all the while, Babylon rejoiced in its privilege, thought itself glorious as it triumphed over its neighbors, thought that its sin was not sin, but in fact was a good thing. It abused everyone all around. And then, in the midst of a raucous party, a hand appeared on the wall and said, Time's up. Babylon, drink. You too have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. The cup of the Lord's right hand of judgment comes to you. And it will come to all who degrade and humiliate His creation. The Lord stands against this proud attitude and behavior everywhere in those who are not His people and when it shows up sometimes in those of us who are. How are we to respond to this? Well, as I said, it depends which side of the pronouncement you come down on. Primarily, I'm sure that something like this brought up by God, I didn't bring this up, God did. It's something like this comes up, it's placed in the scripture to encourage those of us who have suffered under this kind of abuse. In a group this size, I would imagine, I would be sure that there are some here this morning for whom this is not theoretical discussion. Not just a Bible topic to be thrown around, but it's very personal. This sort of thing has happened to you in the worst of ways. I'm sure that's happened here. And I also know that unfortunately in a group of this size, there's no way that I'm going to be able to adequately even raise, let alone address, all the questions and problems and issues that have come up in your life because of that. 
There's no way I'm going to be able to do that. If you want to talk more about that later, please come and see me. We can talk. If you'd like to talk to a woman about that, come and see me, and I'll connect you to somebody else. But without claiming that this is the whole answer, I do want to say that what we find here must be part of the answer because God has written it in his word. There must be something useful here. He will deal with those who degrade and humiliate his creation, including those who have degraded and humiliated you. And hearing that and believing it and internalizing it and trusting it and be helpful for you in at least two different ways. First, it will help your heart to know that justice will come. That person, that man or that woman is not going to get away with it. It's been seen, it's known, it will be adequately, perfectly, justly handled. For sure. It's important to know that because it tells you that there is one who judges justly. And that leads to the second part that can be helpful. It can enable you, knowing that that one is there and that he sees and that he has power and desire to handle this, can lead you to the second thing that you need to do. It's very hard. I can't imagine how hard this would be. But you need to do it for righteousness sake and for your own personal living. You need to be able to let go of any desire for retribution and vengeance in yourself. That'll eat you up if you let it live there. It'll eat you up for years if you let it live there for years. We need, in all the different ways that we are offended or hurt in life, this one included, we need to be able to say, like Jesus did when he was about to be crucified, I'm going to entrust myself to him who judges justly and trust that he will handle it. In the meantime, I'm going to go to him as I entrust myself to him. I'm going to go to him and I'm going to find life in him by faith, even though that seems overwhelmingly difficult right now. That's hard. May God give you grace to be able to do that. If you want to talk further about this, I know there are more things to discuss. Come and see me afterwards. But while some of us may have suffered the worst types of this degrading behavior, all of us need to consider if or how we are guilty of it. Again, I remind you, don't only think about sexual assault or rape here, because if you do, then you might be tempted to think, I've never raped anybody, therefore this passage has nothing to say to me. It's not true. Remember, that's just the worst picture of the broader problem tearing down and humiliating, degrading the creation so as to elevate ourselves and make ourselves seem masters of others. We do that in a hundred different ways. Some very innocent. Lots of ways that we try to put ourselves over others and we fiercely fight to hold on to that position. Think through your life and ask, do I do that? A lot of ways, I'm going to touch on just one. One that's rarely discussed in the church but it's difficult and should be. Spousal abuse. Verbal, physical, even sexual. Woe to you if you humiliate 
and degrade your spouse in this manner? It happens, even in the church, even in good churches. I've seen and I've read it. Even people who are either perpetrators or victims of it, who covered over with nice Sunday smiles and everything looks good, sit on leadership positions in churches. It happens. It shouldn't. If you're suffering in a relationship like that, bring it out. Seek help. Make it known. Don't start the gossip tree running by telling everybody or or the, the person most likely to gossip about it. And don't yourself sin by retaliating in some way, like running off and seeking a divorce or something. There are other ways to deal with this. I I encourage you, please deal with it. Make it known. Talk to a trusted, godly friend. Talk to another woman in the church who will help you. Talk to me, to an elder you trust. Make it known. And if you're sinning in this particular way, hear this. Someone already does know. And he is a righteous and perfect judge. And he will deal with all who humiliate and degrade his creation. For sure. Repent of whatever sin, to to whatever degree you need to. There's some heavy things we've been talking about here. Maybe you're not anywhere nearly that far down the road. But as you think through, do I do this at all? Do I tear down other people at all to try to subject them to my control? Yeah, I do in some ways. Not that way, but repent. Turn to Him. And if you repent, there is genuine cause for hope. For joy even. Yes, the cup of the Lord's right hand is being passed around the table. But all those who genuinely repent can take heart because there is another cup that is currently being passed around the table and among the nations. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after supper, He took the cup and blessing it, He passed it around the table saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. God the Son took on a body and came down to earth for a purpose. Christ shed His blood to satisfy the wrath of God, to propitiate God's wrath, to turn His wrath away from all of those who drink of the cup of the new covenant in His blood. Every one of us will drink of one of these two cups. Every one of us. Those who drink from the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood will find that He Himself, on your behalf, has drained the dregs, the cup of God's fury, for you. So repent and take heart. That is good news. He can forgive and He will forgive any sin of those who come to Him by faith alone and take His grace Alone. Don't try to mix it with your works. Take His grace alone, by faith alone, and He will forgive. That is glorious good news. Repent and turn to Him. He will deal with those 
who degrade and humiliate his creation. So turn to him in faith and turn away from that walk. The final statement of woe is found in verses 18 to 20. It's different in its structure, and I think there's a reason for that. This evil is more significant than the other four listed, and in fact, more significant than any other evil, because ultimately it is foundational to all evil, to all these other statements of woe. Here it is summarized. The Lord will deal with those who trust in their own creation. Their own creation, the various things that they make, that they themselves create and fashion into objects of trust and allegiance and hope and worship. This is idolatry. And the Lord will deal with those who trust in such things that they themselves create. Verse 18 opens by asking a question. What prophet is an idol? And the obvious answer is none. A craftsman makes it. Maybe he melts a precious metal and he pours it into a mold. Or he takes a piece of choice cedar or some nice smoothed rock and he carves into it a mouth and some eyes. Maybe he puts some jewels on it. Maybe he even overlays it with gold and silver. He fashions this attractive, impressive artifact and then he props it up on his altar or in his shrine somewhere and he calls out to it, Awake! Arise! Teach me! Guide me! Fulfill me! Give me meaning and purpose and protection and prosperity! Please give me fertility and power and victory and happiness and love and wisdom and glory! Speak! Do something! Nothing happens. Nothing happens. The beautiful gold overlaid bejeweled rock just stares back at him sitting on the tabletop, silent, motionless. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, literally it's to wood, woe to him who says to wood, awake. That's crazy. The lunacy of this. Can this speechless, lifeless thing you just made actually teach? Can it guide can it fulfill you? Can it give glory and purpose and all those things we just wanted? No, of course not. Woe to him who trusts in his own creation. And there's the real issue. Talking to wood is not the real issue. It might be a little odd, but that's not the main problem. Trusting it, hoping in it, the thing you just made, Trusting it instead of the one and only creator, the only God there is, the one triune God of the Bible. Woe to the person who does not trust him, but instead trusts his own creation. Idolatry. The worship of, the trust of, something that is created rather than the creator. And it is part and parcel of all human existence. You could see it in the temples in Babylon. You could see it on the hilltops of Israel. You can see it today in shrines in India. You can see it right over there, a few miles from here, on Alta Vista Drive, where I live. Idolatry exists at my house because I exist at my house. I carry around idols everywhere I go within my heart. And be sure of it, 
so do you. It's pretty easy to bash the Babylonians or the Hindus who make some physical, visible idol out of wood or stone and pretty it all up and bow down to it and, and carry it around and clean it when it gets dirty. They worship stone or wood or amazingly even things made out of paper mache. It seems absurd to us. It's pretty easy to, to laugh at them. But note well, the problem is not fashioning wood into statues. Look at verse 18 again. What is the maker doing when he makes an idol? Why is it wrong? Because he's trusting in his own creation. That's the problem. Trusting in, depending on, hoping in, giving our hearts allegiance to, loving something that we've made. The idolater takes the natural resources of this creation and first in his mind and heart, and then maybe with his hands, but it always starts inside. Then he makes something and fastens his heart to it, something that he trusts. What he comes up with is an idol, whether it's inside of him or whether it's physically in his hands. And that is how you and I function day in and day out. We are idolaters. Woe to us all. Some of us try to hoard stuff that's not our own or shouldn't have been. We collect it all thinking that all this wealth will please us. Woe to you. Some people pursue gain for the sake of securing themselves, to build for themselves an impregnable fortress, a nest high up on a cliff in the top branches of a tree, if you will, free from all attack, protecting yourself and your children after you. doesn't work. Woe to you. Some others achieve and achieve and achieve, building their own cities, their own empires, fame for themselves, making for themselves a name, a reputation. It will all come down. Woe to you. Still others abuse people and resources by humiliating them and degrading them and tearing them down so as to elevate themselves. Woe to you. Let me tell you one little piece of how this works in my heart. I have an idol. I have lots of idols. There are many, many, many idols that we worship in our hearts. I'll tell you about one of them. The idol of pleasure and entertainment. That I all too regularly go through this cycle in relation to. I pursue this idol of pleasure and entertainment by cycling through various other things that I turn into good things that I turn then into idols in attempt to find this pleasure and excitement that I desperately want and will not be happy without. It starts out for me with my primary hobby, painting military miniatures. Interesting hobby, I'll tell you more about it later. But <laughs> I collect little bitty military miniatures. I paint them, make little battle scenes out of them. The irony of little bitty lead figures and idolatry has not escaped me. <laughs> I see that. But I, I buy these little things and I think, you know, you know what will really give me pleasure and excitement? If I buy and I, and I build this Civil War collection. So, well, yeah, that'll be good. And so I buy a hundred little figures. They come in, I start to paint them. Oh, this is going to be neat. This is going to bring me such pleasure and excitement. Got a hundred of them. I get through 20, maybe 30. And you know what starts to happen? 
this isn't nearly as pleasurable and as exciting as I thought it was going to be. This is kind of like work. There is a lot of blue on these Union soldiers. Painting and painting. You know what would be more pleasurable and exciting? If I bought World War II figures. That's a totally different war, totally different uniforms, and I get to paint tanks. Neat. That's what I need to be fulfilled and have pleasure and excitement in my life. So I go buy a hundred of them and they come in and I start to paint. And guess what happens when I reach the 20 or 30 mark and maybe get a tank or two done? This is a little tedious. This isn't nearly as much fun as I thought it was going to be. I should... Napoleonics. A wide variety of nations and lots of really colorful uniforms. That will be pleasurable and exciting. Then I will be happy and have joy in my heart. So I buy them, and then I move on to the next period, and the next period, and the next period. And eventually, I get rid of the whole military thing, because that doesn't fulfill me, and I move on to sports. Course of my life, I have cycled through and become either totally immersed in or just kind of flirted with. Golf, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, cycling, hiking. Currently, since I heard that Real Madrid is coming to town and the World Cup is happening, I'm kind of into the European soccer scene. But thinking about getting Fox soccer channels so that I can watch the British Premier League. Do you see what's happening in my heart? And my basic assumption is that you and I are not a whole lot different. Look around your house. How many gadgets, toys, bikes, computer games, magazines, books, decorations, pieces of furniture, landscaping, cars, motorcycles, etc., etc., are lying around your place? Things that you used to think, if I can only get that, then I will have pleasure and excitement in my life. I need that. I want that. You save up, you buy it, you use it for a little while. Cool. And then you think, not what I was thinking it was going to be. And now it sits in your den, and you've moved on to the new model, version 2.0, or 4.0, or 8.0, or 10.0. You keep moving on. None of those things are bad in themselves. We're doing something wrong with them. You see what's happening there when we go through this process? We skip from thing to thing to thing to thing, restless, looking for something. That particular place, with that particular activity, with that particular person, all of that will come together and will, it will be God to me. And it will enable me to say in my heart, ah, yes, finally, peace and joy and calm and fulfillment and no worries anymore and excitement and energy. I found it. It's right here in my hands. But the problem is that it's not right there in your hands. And you realize that. What's right there in your hands is an idol. And it didn't give you what you were really looking for, so you set it aside and you reach out still further. Our hearts chase idols in the service of still more idols, and they are restless. And though the text says these idols are silent, the text also says they are capable of speaking lies to us. They will lead us further and further and further away from the only one who actually can be that to our hearts full joy and peace and contentment. He is that. He wants to be that. He will be. And the idols say, no, come follow me. The old saint said it best. Thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless till they find their home in thee. 
restless. Idolatry is evil and it is folly. Foolishness. It's evil because it denies to the only one in all of the creation. It denies to that one the glory to his name. The full, total allegiance of our hearts. It denies it to him and spreads it out to a hundred other things. And in the process, it is also evil because in the process, we destroy other people. That's the common theme. Look through those woes again and see how much violence and blood is mentioned. We're killing other people because we're chasing idols. It is foolishness and it is evil. It's foolishness because in the process of denying God His glory and destroying other people, we also are destroying ourselves. He's the only one for whom our hearts are made. He's the only one with whom our hearts fit. And we're walking away from Him. That's foolish. It's tragic. Thank God. Thank God that He has committed Himself to destroying idolatry. He will one day destroy it in judgment wherever he finds it. But before then, he's committed himself to the process of rooting it out of the hearts of his children, us, and all those who turn to him. He's going to root it out and replace it with himself. That's what verse 20 is about. But there's a contrast here with the idolatry of the human heart trusting to find life in its own creation, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The Lord Almighty sits enthroned, not in some puny earth temple in Jerusalem that's about to be destroyed. When Solomon built that temple, he said so. It's in the Bible. He said to the Lord, I know you don't live here. You can't live here. You're the God of all the world. This is just a mirror of your heavenly throne room. That's where he sits, enthroned in his heavenly temple, full of sovereign power. He's the everlasting holy rock, the Lord of hosts, awesome in his beauty, full of majestic splendor. His voice is like the sound of rushing mighty waters. His wisdom knows no bounds. Sit before him in silence as he speaks. He says, lay down your toys. Set aside your crafted sticks and your inlaid stones. Put to rest your squabbles and your conflicts and your fears. Repent and take heart. Repenting is good. Repent of thinking so little of me, says the Lord. Repent of seeking life in other things and in activities and other people. Repent of neglecting to love me above all things. Repent of rejecting my one and only plan of redemption, worked out in my Son, incarnate, crucified, and raised. Repent of that. Turn your face toward me in consistent faith and take heart because you will find life. Real life. Chapter 2, verse 4 said that, and it is true. He sits enthroned above. Be silent before Him. And in the state of repentance, take heart. This mighty one is strong to save all who come to him in faith. 
He's strong to save you from the presence and the pain of idolatry now by giving you in this life strong, verse 20-like vision of Him. He can do that in you, showing Himself to you day by day. And He will save you from the eternal consequences of idolatry, but coming into your heart, forgiving you of sin, being your atonement. He can be now and He means to be now all that you need in Christ so come to Him in Christ by faith alone. Cling to Him. Hope in Him alone. Hear His challenge to you in these woes. Mourn over them. Repent and take heart. There is a God who means to be all that you need. And he reigns in perfect justice. We're now going to move to communion and partake of the other cup. Take some time now and pray and repent if you need to. Thank God in joy. Thank him that he has worked to provide forgiveness. For many of us here, I'm sure that he has already forgiven you because you're believers. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.